0: good to be back in the pulpit with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series through 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 4. And our passage this morning is verses 6 through 16. You know, um, a few months ago, I decided that I needed to lose a few pounds. It's probably during the summertime, summer camps, beaches, and whatnot. So I started to, you know, eat it a little healthier, skip the fast food. I even traded Dr. Pepper for water, bought some new running shoes, downloaded a fitness app, started getting up in the morning, going running. Yeah, I was even, um, you know, feeling pretty good. I lost a few pounds. Um, But it didn't take too long before Wendy's and that large Dr. Pepper started to call my name. (laughs) It was calling my name, and I started slacking off on the running and the exercising in the morning. And I think it, I don't even know if I lasted a month before I was already back to my old habits, or maybe lack thereof. Was it any surprise that I gained those few pounds back? Of course not. Of course that was not a surprise, because while I started off on the right foot, I didn't stick with it. I didn't keep it up. I lost motivation. I was tempted by cheeseburgers and french fries, and if you've ever been out to lunch with me, you know I like to eat. I just love food too much. I started to quickly make excuses for why I wasn't doing the things that I had committed to do, I knew were good for me, and before long, that's an afterthought in my life right now. I wonder if anyone else out there can relate to what I'm saying, and maybe it's not diet and exercise, right? Because I, but I think most people understand the basic importance of discipline and persistence, When it comes to achieving a goal. And the same truth uh, applies in all different areas of our lives, right? If um, you're at work, you have a job, and you want to excel, what are you going to need to do? You're going to need to study, to learn, to maybe work a few extra hours, continue to be diligent in order to get that promotion or earn that raise, I'm sure some of you have hobbies, and anyone that has a hobby, something they uh, enjoy doing, knows that the more you work at it, the better and more proficient you'll become. And that's true of golf and woodworking and painting or whatever the things are that you enjoy to do. And so while I think that this is a pretty familiar concept for most of us, I'm concerned that we don't make the same connection when it comes to our spiritual lives. Or maybe even worse, we know the connection exists in our spiritual lives, but we just don't really care that much. But in our text this morning, all throughout Scripture, really, Paul is telling us that persistence absolutely matters in the life of every believer. And somewhere along the way, it seems that a majority of Christians just think that, well, being a Christian means that everything works out. We're happy and it's just an easy life. That because we prayed a prayer or made a decision for Jesus one time back then, that that's, we got our heaven card punched. And now we just sit back and enjoy life until our time's up or Jesus comes back. And we're good with either way. The problem with that philosophy is that it's just plain wrong. Over and over again, the New Testament tells us that being a Christian will not always be easy. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The world hated me first. He says we should expect trouble throughout the scriptures, you read through the pages of the New Testament, you see phrases that Christians are called uh, to do, like to endure, to race, to persist, to fight, to be alert, to persevere, to watch out, to be strong, to put on armor, to be ready for battle, to be brave. The passage that we come to this morning is no different Paul is telling Timothy that when it comes to following Christ, and especially when it comes to leading God's people, persistence matters. That being a Christian is a constant pursuit of Christ. And is going to require these things like diligence and hard work and, again, persistence. So as we open up the word this morning, we're going to look at why persistence is so important and what it looks like in each of our lives. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that we can be here together with you, opening up your word. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would challenge and maybe even convict us in this area of persistence. Lord, that you would be with us as we seek to know you more this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So as we begin going through this passage this morning, we should acknowledge and recognize that Paul is writing to Timothy. It's a specific letter to a specific guy at a specific time. Timothy is a a young man. He's been charged with a big responsibility. Take care of this church. Paul is hoping that he would come back, but not sure. So Paul's laying out the expectation for how Timothy should act as he leads the church. And what Paul is telling Timothy is not only the things that he ought to be living by, but the truths that he needs to preach and teach the church. And so while this passage is addressed to Timothy, a young pastor, a church with some challenges, it certainly has application to every one of us today. Even if you aren't a pastor, even if you aren't a leader It's just like we saw in chapter 3 when we talked about the qualifications of elders and deacons. That These are people that are supposed to lead the church, but we are all supposed to aspire to fulfill the characteristics and the qualifications of our leaders. And so here again, the model of a servant leader is something that we should all be aspiring to. So as we walk through the text this morning... We'll talk about Paul's expectations for Timothy, but also how these same principles should be applied in our regular lives every day. So as we get back to the main question this morning, what does it mean to be a persistent Christian? first thing I notice here is that persistence requires fuel. Persistence requires fuel. What I mean by that, look at verse 6 with me. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You see here, being trained can also be translated nourished. Just like a car needs gas or a runner needs food for energy, Paul tells Timothy, you need fuel you need nourishment. And the nourishment that you need, Timothy, and the nourishment that you need, church, is the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that have been taught and followed by Paul and Timothy. And this isn't just a one-time nourishment. This is an idea of, of a constant nourishment, of a continual feeding, a habitual discipline in the Christian's life. And what Paul's telling Timothy is that he cannot expect to be a faithful servant or a faithful minister of Christ if he wasn't first fueling himself spiritually. The fuel of the Christian, especially the Christian leader, is the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And it tells me that we're fueled by truth. What are the words of the faith and the good doctrine? Well, to put it simply, these are the truths of the gospel. The gospel that was first taught to Timothy by his mother and his grandmother. That he saw and heard and learned of Paul as he traveled and ministered alongside him for many years. And while we should certainly expect our leaders to be fueling themselves with the word of God, this absolutely must apply to every believer We must also be fueled by truth. The truths of scripture and the gospel that are laid out in his word. In the next verse, verse 7, Paul warns of a potential danger to Timothy's growth and his ministry. It's a type of bad fuel. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. King James says but refuse profane and old wives' fables. And Paul would have certainly had in mind the false teaching that we talked about last week that Pastor Keith walked us through, where there's false teaching that's creeping into the church, and when we see it, we need to get rid of it. We need to call it out and say, not here. But it would also be anything that was just un- unbelievable, silly, unprofitable, and poor taste. This would include those things that we would call outright heresy. But it would also include things that could just be just as damaging, like rumors and gossip that have the potential to infiltrate and ruin the church. And so what Paul is saying in these two verses is made clear, don't stray from the good fuel of the gospel. Anything less, anything less than the pure word of God Could have disastrous consequences. It would be like taking your car to the gas station. But instead of putting the unleaded gas in. You put diesel in. You put diesel in your car that's made to run on unleaded gasoline. You're not getting very far. You're not getting very far before the fuel injectors and the filters and the lines get all gummed up. And maybe you get a mile or two down the road. But you're going to be broken down stuck on the side. You're going to have an engine that is probably damaged beyond repair or else requires quite a hefty bill. This is what Paul is saying if you give credence to, if you allow irreverent, silly myths into the church, if you pay attention to them, give them any room at all. Same thing with the false doctrines that we talked about last week. But Paul tells us how to avoid this wrong kind of fuel, this bad teaching, these errors, this gossip, these silly stories. He says we train ourselves for godliness. Now, the first time we encountered our English word train, it was actually this word for nourished. And here where he says rather train yourself, this word train is completely different. It's a Greek word that can be translated to exercise or to discipline. It's actually the word from which we get our English word gymnasium or gymnastics. And what Paul is saying, you don't have anything to do with the bad fuel. So in order to know what the pure fuel is, the good source of truth, you're going to need to train yourself. You're going to need to be persistent, diligent, disciplined in the truth. Paul's saying there's a purposeful commitment to learn and to know the Word of God. And this applies to every believer in the church. But notice he doesn't say just train. He says train yourself for godliness. The purpose of this training, of diving into the Word, of learning and growing and studying, is godliness. And if you think of an athlete, which is surely in the mind of Paul, as he's writing this, the Greek um, athletics and Olympics and all those things, competitions are, are, are a big thing in Ephesus. And if you think about a runner, what does a runner do to train? They stretch and they exercise. But the purpose of the stretching and the exercising isn't to stretch and to exercise. The purpose is to run in the race. If you think about a football player, a football player lifts weights and memorizes plays. Well, they don't do that just to lift weights and memorize plays. The purpose of doing those things is so they can get out on the field and compete. The same is true for our spiritual disciplines. Getting into the Word isn't just so we can check the mark on the box. Well, I read my Bible today. It's not just that I memorized this Bible verse today, and that's all there is to it. No, we're training. We're being disciplined for godliness. The spiritual disciplines—prayer, fasting, Bible study, and the like—they're not ends in of themselves. But they're a means to a deeper relationship with God that produces godliness. This is the fuel that keeps us moving forward. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The question that we ought to be asking ourselves is how are we nourishing ourselves with the word? Are you diligent in the reading, studying, and praying through scripture? Could you say, like Paul does here, that the, the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly? Because honestly, there's no real reason to go any farther in our text if we don't have this right. If we can't agree that the Word of God is worth persistence and diligence and pursuing, if we can't agree that godliness and a relationship with God is our purpose, then we're never going to go anywhere as Christians. But Paul continues on. Not only are we fueled by truth, the next few verses tell us that our persistence is also fueled by by hope. Look with me at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here Paul gives us another reason to pursue godliness. Why be devoted? Why sacrifice your time and your energy and your effort in order to deepen your relationship with God? Where do we get our motivation? Because godliness is of value in every way. Now, Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't take care of our bodies. This isn't a proof text that says, See, look, I don't have to exercise. It doesn't do very much. No, that's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is simply doing, he's helping us keep the right perspective. Think about all the things that you do for now. Whether it be the exercise or the work or the hobbies. All the things that you spend the time and the effort on. What are they good for? They may be good for a little while. They may be good for this place. But are they things that will matter for eternity? Because Paul says the things that matter for eternity are the things that we need to be disciplined in. The things that we need to pursue godliness Paul says is what matters most in this life and the life to come and he doubles down in the next verse he gives us a guarantee verse 9 he says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance he says you better believe it what I'm saying is true you can take it to the bank why because Paul knows it all nope has nothing to do with Paul For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul's telling Timothy, this is true and everyone should accept it. We work, we're diligent, we're persistent in pursuing godliness because that's where our hope is. Our hope is not in wealth or success or reputation or even our relationships, but it's in God himself. Our hope is in God because he has saved us. He has saved us through his son, Jesus, and thus. We can look beyond whatever's happening here on the surface and we see the things that matter for eternity. And just as a quick side note, Paul says that God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's not advocating some type of universalism here, that everyone will be saved. Rather, Paul is actually just pointing out the exclusivity of Christ, that there is only one Savior Therefore, he is the Savior of everyone because he's the only one Savior who is the living God. And since there is only one Savior and there is only one God, he is the Savior of all people, but not all will be saved. He upholds the world, he gives all men breath. In that sense, he is their Savior, but only those who respond in faith will ultimately be saved. And so, While Christ's death was sufficient for all, we say that it's only efficient for those who believe. So in turn, only those who believe will have their hope fixed on God. Only those who believe will understand the true value of godliness. And in turn, the foolishness of putting our hope on anything in this world. So a persistent life needs fuel. That fuel is the truth of God's word and the hope of eternal life with God. Paul's saying no one's going to stumble into godliness. You need a plan in order to succeed. You know, my history with poor exercise habits I started with, it actually goes back a long time. I'll tell you a quick embarrassing story. When I was, I think I was in 7th grade, maybe 8th grade, I was probably 12-ish. When I was 12, I was like five foot one and 100 pounds. And that's not an exaggeration. But I'm a middle school guy, and I had a friend down the, down the way, and maybe I was almost a teenager, I don't know. And we decided one summer, because we always hung out and there's nothing really to do, hey, as a 12-year-old boy, <laughs> we're going to join the gym down the street. So my friend was less than a mile away, and a gym was half a mile away from his. We're going to join a gym. <laughs> so we did. We got on our bikes. We go. We joined the gym. And for probably a couple weeks, we would get up early, go walk into the gym. You know what we did when we were in the gym? We walked around. We looked at the equipment. I, I had never been in a gym before. I didn't know how to use this stuff. I'm a 12-year-old kid, but I don't want to ask anybody because, you know, I'm a 12-year-old. <laughs> And walk around, I sit on a machine, and it looks like this works like this, and put my, you know, whatever. Oh, this looks, I think this is called a dumbbell, and t- oh, that one's heavy, and <laughs> let's try this one. And, you know, we just kind of wander around, and oh, I know how to ride a bike, and so maybe we would get on the bike or, or whatever. And then the most important part of the gym trip was we would always go to the counter. We had to get a protein drink. Because, you know, you're, you're a guy at the gym. You need fuel. So we got a protein drink. That's about the only consistent thing we did was we overpaid for some ridiculous protein drink. What was I missing in all of that? The actual exercise. I was hardly in the gym long enough to break a sweat. I was never consistent enough to gain any muscle. I was never disciplined enough to see any progress. And so drinking a protein shake was pretty useless since I wasn't exercising my muscles. Some things haven't changed. (laughs) In the next few verses, Paul switches from describing the fuel of the persistent life to describing the actions of a persistent life. He says not only does persistence require fuel, it it involves action. Just as he began in verse 6, encouraging Timothy to put these things before the brothers, Paul tells Timothy in verse 11, command and teach these things. Timothy is to command and teach the truths of this passage, the truths of the gospel. And he is to speak with authority. And he expects his congregation to follow his teaching. You know, I I listen to a decent amount of preaching. I watch a decent amount of churches out there. And unfortunately, it seems to me that boldness to command and teach has been waning in our culture. John MacArthur agrees with me. He says this. Paul's command to Timothy contrasts sharply with much contemporary preaching. Preaching in our day is often intriguing, but seldom commanding. Often entertaining, But seldom convicting, often popular, but seldom powerful, often interesting, but less often transforming. Paul does not ask Timothy to share or to make suggestions to his congregation. Rather, he is to prescribe truth to them. And this is really important for us to understand, and mostly you as not pastors. That pastors and elders are commanded to teach these things. And as church members then, the expectation is that you would follow and obey. But that means it's vitally important that as church members, you have godly leaders. Because they have been entrusted in you. Not only to teach, but command the scriptures. And by being a part of this body, you're saying, I will follow and submit. And the only reason, the only reason you should want to follow and obey your leaders and your pastors is because you believe they are godly men who are reliant on God's word. We'll come to that in a second. Paul continues, verse 12, Let no one, Timothy, despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Both verse 11 and here, especially in verse 12. Paul's telling us persistence involves action. And so we need to live by example. We've talked before, Timothy, relatively young. He's in a tough spot, young pastor, difficulties in the church. Paul knows that, hey, there's going to be some people that are going to look down on you. He may even think that there's going to be times that Timothy may question his calling because of what others might be saying. But Paul simply says, don't let them. Let no one despise you. He says, don't do it. Instead, focus on living by example. He doesn't say argue with them. He doesn't say take them out to lunch and try to convince them. He doesn't say go get some more degrees or prove your worth. He says no live by example. And if you live your life in a way that is godly, you will quiet the doubters. This is how we are ought we ought to live. An example in speech In conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We don't really have time to go into all of these things. But simply in speech and conduct. Everything that we say and do demonstrates our character. And so our character should exemplify godliness. Faith and love is a common pairing all throughout this book. This reveals our relationship with God. Faith. Is the hope of our salvation, but it's also what enables us to have confidence in God. No matter what's happening around us, we love as God loves. And that's only possible if we know and have a relationship with God who is love. And then lastly, he says, we are to be an example in purity. In our day, this may be more important than any other. So it would certainly include sexual purity, as Ephesus was full of sexual immorality and practices. If Timothy gave in to temptation, allowed sexual sin to go unchecked in the church, it would no doubt destroy his ministry. Unfortunately, our culture is one that is increasingly promoting an unhealthy view of sex and sexuality. It's an area that's destroying marriages and families and even churches. Paul is telling us, in all of these areas, authentic spirituality cannot be separated from inner righteousness. Our lives are a product of our hearts. Right teaching leads to right living, but wrong teaching leads to wrong living. We must be diligent in setting a godly example to those around us. He also tells us we ought to live by the word Always, We've already talked much about this. It's worth mentioning one more time, as Paul does here. The authority of your leaders and your pastors is not found within them or their title. The authority comes from the Word of God. Two passages that I'll put up on the screen, but I won't read for you here. Hebrews 4 tells us the Word of God is what's living and active. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's telling us it's the Word of God that empowers His people. We have the very breath of God in print here. It's our source, our only source of wisdom and practice. We are to read it and to preach it and to teach it. But we are also to be transformed by it, to obey it, to learn and deepen in our understanding of it. This is instructive for everyone in the church. We must persist in the words of faith and the sound doctrine. Then he says we ought to live by the Spirit. Verse 14 tells us, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Paul tells Timothy he's to live by example and by the Word. And now he's saying, and by the Spirit. Don't neglect the gift that you have, Timothy. Paul wasn't there, but he wasn't. But Timothy was not on his own. Paul knew he was indwelt with the Spirit, and the Spirit had gifted him. And so sure, you probably don't have the same gifts of Timothy. But as a Christian, we are all empowered with gifts of the Spirit. And those gifts are for the common good. Those gifts are for the service of the body and the church. If you're a Christian, you've been given a gift from the Spirit. We don't have time this morning to go through and dive and do a study of spiritual gifts. I will tell you that if you're a Christian, you have one. And if you're wondering what that gift might be, I can give you one quick suggestion find a place to serve. Call the church office and say, Who needs help? Try out a few things. Maybe you're gifted in the nursery. I'm not. <laughs> We could use a couple gifted people working with teenagers. That means you've got to be gifted in all kinds of things, especially patience. I, I don't know, and you won't know, unless you dive in, get involved, find a place to serve. That's what it looks like to be a persistent Christian. Last point this morning. persistence requires fuel. Persistence involves action. But gloriously, persistence pays off. Verse 15. Practice these things. Again, these persistence words. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. We're to practice these things. What are these things? Well, everything pertaining to godliness. To be diligent, to keep at it is what to practice means. There's also an encouragement here that all will see your progress. Meaning, Paul knows Timothy is not perfect. Paul knew me, he would know, I'm not perfect. I know some of you, and you're not perfect either. But the good news is perfection is not the measure of a Christian. But progress should be. Progress should be a mark in the Christian life. And it's going to look different in different ways for different people. But progress comes from persistence. Paul says, you want progress, and immerse yourself. Think of a sponge getting put in water. It's just soaking it in. It's soaking wet. Literally, it means to be in these, to be in godliness all the time, to be absorbed in them. If we want to be absorbed in godliness, then we're going to need to give ourselves wholly to the Lord. We need to understand that being a Christian is not just a part of your life. It's not just what you do on Sunday morning. It's who you are. It is your life that we would completely, totally, wholly give our lives to God. And you will see progress. Are you any further than you were last week? Well, I don't know, last week, kind of close, last month, last year. Can you point to where God is working in your heart over the last year or two or three? Because if not, you've got a problem. The good news is progress doesn't have an expiration date. It will never end. And you haven't missed the start date. Because if you're here this morning, progress can start today. Give yourself wholly to God. Let Him start the work in you. Persistence leads to progress, and it reveals our salvation. Verse 16, last verse for this morning. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul just summarizes in this verse the whole section. Maybe we should have just done this verse. Keep a close watch on yourself, his way of living, his example. And on the teaching, the fuel, the doctrine. Keep a close watch on these things. Ultimately, Timothy could only control Timothy. So Paul says, so watch it closely. Watch your life and your teaching closely. Guard your life. As you guard your life, there's a huge payoff. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul here again, he's not saying that there's some formula by which you can earn or persist into salvation, that somehow you can force other people to be saved. No, scripture is clear. That's an act of God alone. But the sense is that by persevering, by persisting, you will see your salvation as it matures. You will see your salvation become completed by living a consistent and godly life. Timothy would be confident in his salvation. You and I can be confident in our salvation as we see progress, as we persist in godliness. And even maybe greater, not only would we be confident in our own salvation, but that our lives and our teaching and example would be used by God to bring others into salvation as well. And this is why the passage is so important. We must have the right fuel. We must bear that fuel with action. We must hold to these truths and live out these truths. Why? Because we're talking about eternity. Because we're talking about salvation. How does God save people? He saves people through His church and through His people. And what that means for our church today is that the healthier our leaders are and the healthier our church is, the more effective we will be in spreading the gospel. I listened to a sermon by David Platt recently. Sum this thought up short sentence. If we distort the gospel, it doesn't save, it damns. Don't compromise. Hold it tight. People's lives are at stake for eternity, based on people hearing the truth from the church and its people. The encouragement this morning is to be persistent. It requires fuel. So get the right fuel, the word of God. It involves action. So act the right way. Walk in godliness. And it pays off to gain the rewards. Eternal salvation, not just for you, but maybe for those around you as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful that it's you who do the work, who does the work. It's not about us. It's never been about us. It's about you, your word, your glory. Lord, I pray that this word would continue to resonate in my life. In our church, in our people, in our families, in our homes. That we would be a marked people for you. People would see us and say, Wow, what is that about? That we would be confident in our own salvation and have the privilege of leading others.